When we think of Samuel Beckett's theater, the images that come to mind are often of bodies in pain. They are immobilized, paralyzed, trapped, or incomplete. In his early plays, physical disability is more tangible, more tactile, from the open wound on Lucky's neck, Pozzo's blindness in waiting for Gatto, to Ham's paralysis and blindness and Clough's hobbled physique in Endgame. When Harold Pinter played Crap in Crap's last tape in his last public performance in 2006, he acted from his wheelchair, bringing his own disability as a result of cancer to his role as a character who listens to vast versions of himself from the vantage point of an old man. As Beckett progresses, his distortion of bodies goes beyond physical to a more metaphorical. Heads float, mouths utter words in darkness seemingly separated from their skulls. Voices echo through his text incorporeally. It's both an other and a familiar, whispering in between the lines. Happy Days was Beckett's sixth play, and it revolves around one central character, Winnie, a woman in her 50s. She's trapped in mud up to her waist in Act 1, and we then find her, for no explicable reason, buried up to her neck in Act 2. For most of the play, she's alone, despite the offstage presence of her partner, Willie, who is buried behind her in a hole. Describing a painting by Jack Yates in 1937, Beckett speaks out about its depiction of two irreducible singlenesses and the impassable immensity between them, an apt description of Winnie's experience in this play. We watch and we follow as she is abruptly awoken in the morning by a loud ringing noise, typical of Beckett's estrangement of the everyday. So it begins almost like clockwork, Winnie's stream of words cataloging the items in her bag as she removes them one by one, peering myopically at the printed words on her toothbrush, digressing into reflections on language and meaning, recalling half-forgotten quotations from her school days and shifting into memories of early sexual encounters or traumatic events from childhood voiced out loud in the hope that, quote, something of this is being heard. Similarly, in Waiting for Gatto, Act Two of Happy Days contains minor changes but with a major impact. Her body is now buried further up, with only her head remaining visible and the ongoing effects of rage and immobility become suddenly, terrifyingly apparent. Winnie's immobilization can suggest further implications beyond an absurdly bad bout of luck. Perhaps this immobilization is representative of our own self-immobilization, our own self-paralyzation through an obsession with routine, with ourselves, with our everyday. That's something that we're going to be talking about here on this episode where we go through Samuel Beckett's happy days. I'm Will Bixby, and I'm joined, as always, by Cody Tinsley. Cody, how are you? I'm fantastic. I'm happy. It's a what a <laughs> what a beautiful day. Oh, another happy oh, day. Oh, another happy day. Things are great. <laughs> the sky is blue. The sun is shining. I can't move. It's really wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> well, good. I'm, I'm glad you and Winnie are both both having a good time, <laughs> living life. <laughs> It's <laughs> a great intro. Again, you you absolutely nailed it. I really like the um the the quote you pulled. Something of this in the hope that uh, something of this is being heard. That pretty much, mm-hmm. if you had to describe Winnie in one line, that's uh that's a pretty appropriate line. Yeah, I I think so. I mean, she talks so much. <laughs> Just. An incredible amount. You you had mentioned this in our text back and forth before we recorded and just the sheer intensity of someone who has to take on this role. Oh my goodness, I can only imagine that kind of process. 
It's unbelievably demanding on the page. Yeah. It's un it's unbelievably demanding to read on the page. I can only imagine the physical and mental demand that it takes to perform the character, not strictly because of the dialogue that is almost unending and relentless and continuous, but Beckett, as he is famous for, is very, very specific in his stage directions for this character. Uh, and yeah. Stage directions and also like they she he dictates when and when she turns on and off her smile and the the demand for that or or the demand that presents uh, to a performer is immense <laughs> and yeah. um it's a, it's a role that is incredibly meaty but one that I would never want to tackle right no it's it's <laughs> i can only imagine that kind of challenge i mean everything you just said when you look at just the text of the play and and the speaking and the rhythms of speaking. And then on top of that, you throw in the fact that the person is immobilized from the waist up for half of it. Mm -hmm. And then for the second half, they can only move their head. And that's just, that's wild to me. I would, I would, it would take a long time in the rehearsal process for me to get over that fact alone. Yeah. It's, and this is going to be kind of a weird um, parallel. So stay with me. But um, when Jim Carrey played the Grinch, he had to uh, take lessons in like meditation and um, like inner peace essentially in order to properly or to, to keep himself mentally stable while you are in all of that makeup and, and costume. And I would imagine depending on how this character or how, how productions handle the burying part of it, that actors who perform this role have to do a lot of soul searching and really have to bear down on the mental aspect of it because not being able to move and feeling buried could be really dangerous as an actor. could put you in a really bad yeah. place. Oh yeah, absolutely. I, I, yeah, I, <laughs> I, I appreciate that parallel because now it's just got me running all sorts of scenarios in my head of Jim Carrey performing in various Beckett plays. <laughs> And I would watch every single has one. has to happen. Oh, yeah. <laughs> this sounds amazing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I would... God, he's in Crap's last tape. Oh, man. He'd be so good. He would, he would nail it. I guarantee that man has an immense amount of talent for whatever he is as a, as a human being nowadays. Yeah, he's an Im immense acting talent. And, you know, it's like, how good is your good? Well, his good is better than most people's best yeah and uh i think i think he would destroy it i know i'm just i'm now you got me thinking about him as craps and craps last tape I craps last tape or or um act without words where he's like the you know oh, yeah. oh man he would rule he would rule <laughs> i'm well, pro jim get to to the craps last tape episode we'll we'll spend a, a good amount of that episode just pitching our theoretical production with him in it we'll go through we'll do a we'll do a directorial pitch on what everything's going to look like Let's see if we can reach out to gym. his people yeah we'll reach out see if he wants to guest spot in like, i know you haven't played this role but if you were how would you do it how do you do it you give us a little snippet oh goodness well that's what i've got in terms of our brief little overview of the plot 
of Happy Days because as we talked in our last episode of this, the plot in Beckett's shows can often usually be summed up in about 10 words or so. Mm -hmm. So we've moved beyond what happens in the play because not a lot happens in the play in terms of plot, but a lot happens in terms of the character and what we watch Winnie go through and what that can kind of teach us about ourselves and about our own mounds of dirt that we've buried ourselves into. Uh, I did want to pause for just a moment here, and this is what we kind of talked about in our last episode, where we were discussing the idea of meaning in regards to Beckett's stuff. So, I mean, these conversations and these podcasts that we do on Beckett aren't our way to establish any sort of authorial intention behind what he did with any of these plays, because he's, I, I believe that oftentimes he doesn't really have much authorial intention in a lot of his things. He's just kind of, he's distilling whatever random thoughts are coming into his brain and uh, he's leaving it up to us to interpret what it is that we see. So these texts are quite literally then meaningless. They're complete absence of plot, no character development and action all suggest their nothingness, but he isn't concerned with meaning. If anything, he's concerned more by a sort of unmeaning that he creates through his text, the theoretical purpose of a play, a short story or a novella built out through his relationships between author and audience, what happens when that relationship is mutated. So we're talking about interpretation and something that was pretty striking to me and was one of the main reasons why I suggested we look at this play for our next episode uh, was the depiction of the everyday, the, the power of the everyday routine and everyday in our lives and sort of how we as human beings have a habit to become so ingrained in our own everyday and our own routine and ignore kind of the world at large around us that we can often bury ourselves in a hole while the rest of our world is burning uh, kind of in the periphery. And this actually, I think you and I started texting when the most recent bouts of insane, crazy wildfires were reaching out all over the West Coast because seeing that on the news suddenly I had images of Winnie stuck in a hill and was like, hmm, maybe we should talk about this play. <laughs> that seems a little a little appropriate right now. Yeah, I and believe... The, the things haven't really gotten better since we first no, started that conversation. I, uh, I believe that I sent you uh, a message saying, well, yesterday Los Angeles was in sepia tone. Yeah. That's, and uh, <laughs> it was a strange... Uh, you know, I'm from the Midwest originally, and the wildfires is not something... Like, we did controlled burns obviously, but like wild Mm. fires, never anything we ever had to think about or worry about. And um, a couple of weeks ago, one of my uh, coworkers lives in Monrovia and sent me a a picture and just off in the distance, this is just a hill on fire. And he was like, there's the apocalypse. And I was like, well, geez, okay. Okay. (laughs) Geez, what am I supposed to do about it? You know, like, I don't even have a bucket. <laughs> right. It, it, it's, we're, we're kind of telegraphing what's to come. But I mean, it's this weird combination or I don't even know, a combination or a middle ground kind of stuck in between uh, a combination of, well, the world's burning, but I got my own stuff I got to deal with at the moment. So I'm going to really dig into that. But then at the same time, it's like, what can I do? What, <laughs> what literally can I do? Even if I did have a bucket, what? <laughs> I'm gonna go out there. I'm gonna not do shit. I'm gonna burn and die. Yeah. 
So well, which is worse, right? Place. <laughs> yeah. So which yeah. is worse? Is it the person that it just does isn't aware of what's happening, or is it the person who's aware of what's happening but doesn't can't do anything or thinks they can't do anything? Well, I think we might get to maybe some ideas of what Beckett might be saying is worse yep. <laughs> <laughs> when, when we talk about this play. I don't know if I have an answer exactly, but they're both not so great. No, but. We'll go ahead and dig into this idea of the everyday. So I'll kick things off and I'm going to start a little with a different quote, not from Beckett. So this is actually uh, a bit of a poem from W.H. Auden, his uh, pretty famous poem, Musée des Beaux-Arts. That's about suffering. They were never wrong. The old masters, how well they understood its human position, how it takes place while someone else is eating or opening a window or just walking dully along. So two years prior to Auden writing that poem, a famous poem that talks on suffering and humanity and tragedy, Beckett himself was similarly, similarly inspired by a painting to write a poem. Whereas Auden's poem was provoked by seeing Bruegel the Elder's landscape with the fall of Icarus and Brussels, Beckett was standing before Antonella de Messina's St. Sebastian in the Gemelde Gallery Altemeister in Dresden. So he wrote in his diary, he really felt a poem beginning as he looked at this painting, but was disturbed by a quote, noisy guide with a party screaming about Raphael. So, you know, his, his idea went away. He's blaming everybody else. <laughs> Auden's poem speaks. Blaming the tour guide. I love that. Blaming the tour guide. I had something really good brewing and then that <laughs> son of a bitch just went shut up. <laughs> it's good stuff. <laughs> but Auden, Auden's poem speaks to I think it's kind of a uh, disjunction between the mundane and the tragic. So this fragile threshold between the banality of our human life and its capacity for absolute extraordinary singularity. So like Auden, after him, Beckett's response to Antonello's St. Sebastian similarly hones in on the way the rhythms of daily life exist alongside important historical moments. On first encountering this painting, he appeared to be more attentive to the figures in the background instead of the central figure of the martyr and the forefront soldier snoring middle left, women staring from balcony and chatting and going about their business. It's good to be alive is what he wrote in his diary. In a letter writing 11 years, or excuse me, he wrote that in a letter, uh, 11 years to George de Sweet, Beckett remembered the painting and again emphasized how the scene it depicted was, quote, eaten into by the human. So whenever this goes live, we could probably post a picture of the paintings along with it. So sure. people who listen to this can get a better idea of what it is we're talking about. But in this painting, uh, there's essentially a figure with arrows plunged in him standing in the foreground of a busy city marketplace while several civilians all around him don't really seem to notice, don't really seem to care, seem to be going about their own daily business, not paying him any mind. I am incapable of that level of creativity or insight, right? The, both the painter and Beckett for noticing that because the painter, you know, the, the initial artist has to, has to be able to capture that. And they, they did, they, they painted these people sleeping. They painted these people going about their day and that, you know, the term old master is appropriate because that is a really unbelievable grip on the human condition that I'm and I'm incapable of of finding or even I don't even know if I would be able to catch that if I looked at the painting I mean I did I saw a picture of it and I was like well that guy's getting messed up but <laughs> but you know the effort that it takes to put those folks in there to put those people in there it's really 
genius. Yeah. No, absolutely. I'm right there with you. I wouldn't notice that at all. I don't know. The, the first time I actually ever even saw this painting was after I read about this. So I had to look it up and see, oh, what painting is this that they're even talking about? But it's interesting, too, that we're talking about uh, W.H. Auden's painting, or not his painting, his recollection of seeing Bruegel, the elders painting, uh, the landscape of the fall of Icarus. When you look at that one, I mean, that one's a lot more obvious mm -hmm. in terms of what's going on because Icarus is plunged in the water, kind of in the foreground, real close. So it's a little more apparent. Oh, he's, he's commenting on, you know, this, this, our, our human existence, this plight, this disaster that's happened. And these farmers are just kind of going about their own business, not really keeping any mind. And what I really like about this Beckett one, like you just pointed out is that that takes a lot more work to pick up those little cues of the people in the background because mm -hmm. this figure is so prominent in the foreground where you look at it and go, Oh wow, this dude's getting fucked up with these arrows. I'm going to move down the hallway and look at the next painting. Now. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's Beckett for you. I guess yeah, he, was, he, he was concerned about the background more than he was the foreground. <laughs> Which is interesting because happy days is all foreground, right? The background, not that it's irrelevant. It plays a very prominent role, Every everything in Happy Days happens in the foreground. It's one yep. person, one and a half people talking, essentially, right. and everything yeah. else is <laughs> desolate and nothingness. So I think that's interesting that he was able to pinpoint the everyday in the background when so much of Happy Days is like it's in your face. It's like right, it's right here. Yeah. No. Absolutely. So we're gonna move. I head slightly to production notebook and a production of Happy Days in 1979 that Beckett actually directed. It starred an actress named Billy Whitelaw, who was a frequent Beckett collaborator. I'm sure we'll be talking about her quite a bit. She, she did a lot of Beckett shows, a lot of Beckett premieres. They had a good working relationship. In the notebooks that he had of the production he was working on, he encourages a very distinctive kind of quality of movement from Whitelaw. He talks about her hands fluttered bird-like before they settled on something to which she clung, a precious commodity that would enable her to negotiate another phase of her lonely day. So Winnie's presented as very much like a bird, and her bird-like characteristics are suggested by the text of the play. In Act One, as her husband Willie crawls in the dirt behind the mound in which she's trapped, Winnie's lightness in association with the air is suggested when she kind of muses about the earth releasing her. She says, I'd simply float up into the blue. Yes, the feeling more and more that if I were not held in this way, I would simply float up into the blue. And perhaps someday the earth will yield and let me go. The pull is so great. Yes, crack all around me and let me out. Don't you ever have that feeling, Willie, of being sucked up? Don't you have to cling on sometimes, Willie? So Winnie's fantasy of flight is an impossibility. Uh, one, because she's a human being, and two, because she is actually physically stuck in the earth itself. Uh, Winnie's longing for aerial gifts is a suggestion of an imaginative kind of yearning, of a physical ephemerality, which, interestingly enough, contradicted uh, by Beckett's famous comment about Winnie's gender. So during rehearsals of the premiere in 62, so this was not with Billy Whitelaw, but with a different actress, I'm blanking on her name at the moment, but Beckett is said to have remarked to the actor playing Winnie that he thought, quote, only a woman could cope with the desperate setting of the play and go down singing, which, God, gotta love him, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't really know how to take that. 
it's like the most backhanded compliment you could give somebody. Yeah. It's like it's kind of a yikes, like but I guess it's really nice. It's like the nicest way of saying I don't know, it's just a nice way of being sexist, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If, if you know if you're gonna say some misogynistic comment, I guess he he flowered it up a little bit. Yeah, he did. He made it pretty. So he's got that going for him. But it is interesting that in the final moments when he sings the Merry Widow Waltz as a, quote, musical box tune, but her monologue in its entirety, receiving no answer for pretty much the entirety of the play, with its rising and its falling notes of varying intensity and urgency, might itself be considered to enact Beckett's comment about going down singing. So Winnie's language echoes birdsong uh, quite a bit and suggests a sort of liminal status or sort of presents Winnie as this privileged being, this conduit that can pass between the earthly and the ethereal. And this can be heightened in several moments of the play. Back to when Beckett directed, he was extremely sensitive to these moments of weakness. So he carefully annotated and coordinated their occurrences in his notebook. And in this way, Winnie might be thought of as a sentinel animal that used to detect risks to humans by providing uh, advance warning of the dangers, like canary in a coal mine kind of deal. Mm. This could be one of the reasons we observe her verbal and physical routines with such rapt attention, even as they become more and more constrained. And that's sort of the crux of what we're kind of getting at. These rhythms, these routines, these repeated actions that she does in Acts 1 and 2 constitute this theory of the everyday. Uh, it was a concept and it's a theory that was originally proposed by uh, French theorists such as Henri Lefebvre. Uh, and Michel de Certeau, but it's been expanded upon by many, many theorists since then. Uh, but I feel that it can be used to evaluate the political resonance of the everyday and happy days, and uh, we can make a case for its imaginative force and relevance if we wanted to put it on today. So, I mean, this play was originally written in 1961, yep. so it's been a hot second. But I feel that for those very reasons and that idea of everyday, it can definitely still relate and be applied to right now. Oh, a hundred percent. Well, I would, before we started recording, I just, I was telling you about, there was, I think there was a production last year in Los Angeles or a couple of years ago, like the beauty about so much of Beckett's work, specifically his dramatic work is that it is devoid of any specific cultural references is not dependent upon understanding of a time period. Like you can by and large just set it, anytime or you can put it on anytime and folks will be able to get something out of it right and uh that's that's impressive i've really enjoyed taking this sort of analytical deeper kind of reading of these plays it's such an interesting experiment when you're presented a text that is absurd and meaningless and bizarre how much reason and meaning that we can push into it mm -hmm. and we're like oh this woman buried in the hill obviously that's a comment on our current uh, climate disaster <laughs> it's like <laughs> interesting yeah walk me through that one but then you watch it and you're like oh, I'm, I'm i'm feeling this this is about <laughs> our current environmental disaster this is oh people need to see this play maybe it'll kickstart something it's a it's been a very fascinating uh experiment the power of nonsense and how that can inspire meaning yeah and i think that's because at the heart like the world is nonsense right and 
the world is nonsense. There's no lo- There's no real logic that guides the world. It's. I mean, there's the laws of physics, but beyond that, there's no. There's right. no predetermined thing that's guiding the world, and so it's up to us to find that meaning and to interpret that meaning individually and as a society. And Beckett's work is like a microcosm of that. If you can do it, if you can access his work and find meaning in the meaningless on that small level, well, we can take those lessons and expand them to a local level, state level, national level, and then hopefully an international level. Yeah, absolutely. No, you're, you're spot on. And that, uh, we could go down a whole rabbit hole tangent about everything that you just said. The, <laughs> the, the, the golden nugget <laughs> in that little bit there. It just got me thinking is, wouldn't it be nice if as a country of the United States of America, uh, the greatest country in the world, we had some sort of nationally funded, nationally recognized and instituted uh, cultural institution that put on theatrical works, works of art, great pieces of literature, great pieces of film that is readily available and viewable for all of our citizens, all of our young children in education, and also provided them with an opportunity to discuss what they thought about these works. And then maybe that would kickstart conversations about how it applies to their world and their environment and and helping others and and becoming part of the community. And doesn't that just sound nice? Doesn't that sound like it would help solve so many of these problems? It sounds unbelievably wonderful, but also unbelievably utopian, right? And it's not even utopian, (laughs) but it sounds so reasonable and beneficial that it would never happen. It would never happen because there's, there's no money in it. What you're, what you're basically proposing is government-subsidized <laughs> theater, right? Yeah. Government-subsidized theater. It's, that's a hard sell, man. <laughs> like, yeah, nobody's gonna, no one's going to hear my elevators, uh, elevator pitch on that one. <laughs> they, try and, they try and cut funding to PBS, for Christ's sakes. You think you're going to try and get them <laughs> to fund a net like government? Nah, man. Uh, hey, I'm on board, and if you can get a lobby going, I'll be there right with you, champion it. But it's a long shot. It's a long well, shot. You're a thousand percent correct. In the interim, we have this podcast <laughs> for for <laughs> for everyone to to listen to and be inspired and go, ah, these two, He's, they know what's up. They they've got to figure it out. <laughs> we don't life. need we don't figure need the out. government to tell us how. What's great works of art? We'll just listen to these guys. We're all yeah. set. We'll have them tell us what to listen to and what to watch <laughs> and what to think. <laughs> well, I'm going to do quickly. Uh, quickly is uh, italicized there. I'm going to go through kind of a, a history, very rough history, a selective history of theories in regards to this everyday concept and how I feel that they can relate to happy days. And then once I go through that, we'll kind of, we'll chat about our feelings on these things. But we'll talk first, a person named Kristen Ross. So they examined rapid changes that occurred in French society in the decade from the mid fifties to the mid sixties, right around the time when Beckett was in the height of his uh, writing. They talk about transforming France from a rural empire oriented Catholic country to a fully industrialized decolonized urban one. 
Ross focuses on cultural artifacts, so material markers of capitalist modernity, and examines the narratives generated in response to those sorts of materials. We can connect this to Winnie's focus on material objects of a capitalist society from her purse. Even a connection with marketing language or this idea of uh, capitalist language of selling products. She talks about it with her toothbrush. She says, fully guaranteed, genuine, pure. And her seeming trust in the claims on the medicine bottle she pulls from her purse, loss of spirits, lack of keenness, want of appetite, so on and so on and so on. This kind of idea calls to mind, not entirely sure the pronunciation of this name, Lefebvre, it's uh, hard to say, attribution of his discovery of the concept of the everyday life to his wife's tone of voice one day in their apartment when she praised a particular brand of laundry soap. She is recorded to have saying, this is an excellent product. And Lefebvre portrays his wife here as sort of a ventriloquist dummy that's enthralled by this marketing slogan. And these theories arose to a great degree out of an antagonistic reaction against a mechanized and bureaucratic routine of modern work and regulated consumption of consumerism. He saw every day as an opportunity for subversion by a relatively small group of people that were resistant to these forces. More recent theorists on the concept of every day don't necessarily agree with that. Uh, they took it a different direction. There's two people, Highmore and Felsky. They challenge this kind of formulation and they assert that routine isn't just a form that's dictated from above, so from the capitalist society, from these marketing pitches and so on, uh, but that we ourselves establish our own daily routine uh, to give our own lives rhythm and predictability and in some way give our own lives meaning. We use routine to bring order. We use routine to control our lives uh, that may otherwise seem entirely determined by the contingencies of context. So our routine is our way of, of asserting uh, authority over ourselves. This other philosopher here, Luce Giard, proposes an extensive exploration of domestic space as a shelter to which one withdraws and finds solace. So kind of applying that idea of the everyday and of instituting control over our lives to our own domiciles and our domestic spaces and shelters. And shelters they view as a place where daily practices and the quote, basic gestures of ways of operating transform their private territory into a portrait of its occupant. So assembled through the objects present or absent and the habits that they imply. So essentially someone's home, uh, someone's own territory and shelter takes on the personality and the characteristics of the person that lives inside of it. It almost becomes like another person. Uh, Giard quotes later on talking about interactions of person within the elements of shelter, uh, leading to domestic routine, material tools, and a practice of this quote every day. So if we look at that idea and we apply it to Winnie's relationship with her domicile, which is this mound of dirt, <laughs> we can then see that as both a shelter and as a trap. So her enclosure in this mound with her very few resources that are within reach or view facilitates her internal relationship with the contents of her bag and the habits and the practices that are generated by her routines with these objects. So essentially the mound is very obviously a trap. It's a dual nature of both comfort and constraint for winning. This final note, Tom Van Doren examines the role of hospitality in species living alongside and accommodating one another. And they claim that all hospitality is situated within the contingency, the conditionality of a world of lived relations which necessarily delimit the space of welcome. So essentially when hospitality is missing, the everyday then becomes a site of tension. In the case of an unwelcome character, 
the everyday is not const uh, constitutive of social cohesion, but it rather articulates a singular sense of time and place. So then Happy Days brings into focus the political conflict involved in transforming an inhospitable space, our external environment, into space, a refuge generated by compulsive behavior. It's a lot. And uh, I, the Gerard Lucy, Luce, mm -hmm. Gerard, the idea that the everyday is how we exert control over ourselves. I identify with that a lot um, because we have so many external factors that we perceive as keeping us or as controlling us. Well, then within, within these controlling factors, I at least have this set of things that I do. I choose to do in this order. And I, yeah, I think, I think there's some credence to that. I also think it's interesting, the idea that the house or the home or the, the, the domicile becomes a reflection of the person that's inhabiting it. And specifically uh, to Winnie, I think that's appropriate. Or if you, if you follow that line of thought, her, what she's inhabiting is nothing, right? It's just emptiness yeah and darkness and, and desolate. And that speaks a lot to who she is. She's a little bit, she's got a little bit more going on than that, but by and large, I found her to be an empty character, very empty, very void of, I guess soul isn't really what I would say, but very void of much substance, I think is appropriate. Yeah. No, I think that that's, I think that's an interesting way to to kind of talk about this character because, I mean, I think you're kind of right. What can we really make out about her anyway? The majority of the play that she's talking about is she's just rummaging through a purse and talking about the shit that she's pulling out of it. <laughs> you know, she's going through her routine. She's going through her every day that she does, seemingly every single day that existed before the moments of the play and however many days she'll have after act two which doesn't seem like that many and seems content right. to do so and that she doesn't that, a smile <laughs> yeah it's it's that contentedness that really reflects emptiness to me it makes me very sad too which i'm sure we'll get into <laughs> in a little bit but um yeah the like when when you said that a home is a reflection or almost another person that really struck a chord with me because, I mean, I just looked into my bedroom, my, uh, and you've got plants, a couple of Beatles posters, a certain bedspread, and like those are both, all those things are somehow tied to either me or my wife. And when, when, and, you know, when we move the next person or couple comes in, it'll be an entirely different setup. It'll, and it, and it will more appropriately reflect who they are. That's a fascinating theory that I've never heard of, but it's kind of a common sense thing. Like when it's, you right. hear it and you're like, well, yeah, of course, but someone has to say that. Yeah. No, I'm right there with you. When I was first reading about that kind of concept and how the home takes on essentially the personality of the people that are living inside of it. Yeah, it's exactly like, well, duh, of course. But <laughs> I just never had that thought, I think put into my brain in that way where it was like oh now i'm suddenly very consciously aware of my apartment and how it does reflect the people that live inside of it mm -hmm. and yeah no I, I 
it's interesting too how when you were talking about this whole idea of well someone else will just move in when i move out then it's essentially the personality of that home is is being like killed yeah <laughs> it's, it's just it's just being sucked away and it's like well it's been nice see you later <laughs> going to move on to something else that will take on a, a new life. You know, they say that what's the old, like if these walls could talk, they would probably be driven insane because they're being forced to make personality change, drastic personality changes every four to five years. Right. It's like, Oh, who am I now? Oh, Jesus Christ. Who's this guy? <laughs> <laughs> no, exactly. But I don't know. I think all of this kind of discussion on every day and routine it's very interesting, uh, especially when we're looking at it in terms of happy days and, and what Winnie goes through in that play. It really got me thinking about kind of my own routines. It's, it's sort of the same thing that happens pretty much every time I now read a Beckett play where it's like, oh, these people, that's ridiculous. And then 10 minutes later, I go, well, hang on. <laughs> I do those things. <laughs> and then I start to think and I go, oh, the purse isn't that ridiculous. I do the same bullshit with my phone. Mm-hmm. I wake up sit on my phone, go through the same three apps for two hours while I drink my coffee in the morning, log in, go to work. It's like, oh my God. I take the the same same route to work every day, right? (laughs) Same route to work every day. I listen to the same, you know, two dudes on, on local sports talk radio say the same tired takes over and over again. Uh, And then, you know, I come home and read this play and like, look at this idiot stuck in a hole playing with her purse and about 10 minutes in you're like ah man this is Ah, crap i'm that idiot (laughs) it's me i'm the idiot damn it it's i'm i'm laughing at myself (laughs) (laughs) and it's interesting too because i mean that definitely sparked some extra level of self-awareness in me while reading this play and i started to critique my routines and be like why do i do that why, what, what's the point of <laughs> of me doing that same thing literally every day and it's this idea of comfort and that the concept of comfort is really amplified in this play because everything else around winnie is so physically uncomfortable i mean the the, the gong rings every time she tries to even drift off and go to sleep she's, mm. she's dragged back into consciousness no matter what and so she finds solace and comfort in these sorts of routines just the same way that i would do i have a crappy day or even just a regular day i know at the end of the day i'm going to do the same three things that i always do and that's kind of a, a a safety net it's like a life preserver out there it's like well at least i know that that's that's there at the end of the day i'm going to at least go through that and i like that absolutely you know you can have the worst day at work but you know i come home and i know that Right about like eight thirty nine o'clock, I'm gonna hit the couch. I'm gonna open up Reddit and watch Archer. You know, like, and that's just you could substitute any television show in that. But like, that's how you wind down, and it it is it's comforting. It's not only it, it's comforting because it's familiar, and it's comforting because it goes back to that idea of control. Like, this is what I'm doing at this time. This is my time. Right, this block of time is mine, which I think is a a staggering mindset that we've accepted that we in our lives we have between the hours of 6 30 p.m and you know 7 30 a.m as our time and everything else is uh, delegated to people that control that time I, it's reading this play has made me like not necessarily reassess because really like we mentioned earlier what the fuck am i going to do but it's right. <laughs> certainly made me more <laughs> cognizant of right. time More and, and for sure yeah 
yeah. And I mean, that idea of control, I think, is so prevalent right now in the terms of everything that's happening with the pandemic that is so incredibly outside of our control. It's, it's this invisible thing that we can't have any kind of sway over whatsoever. And so at least I have then leaned very heavily into what I can control. Sure. And my routine has kind of evolved even further than what it was before all the pandemic stuff. I'm much more aware of everything that's going on within the walls of my home because that's the only thing that I have any kind of <laughs> grasp or authority over whatsoever. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting how folks decide that they're going to exert what little control they have. You have decided that, you know, your home is where you can control things. Other people have decided that they're going to exert their control by defying law and order, by defying basic common sense, by defying what everybody else has said is the smart thing to do. And I think that's a reflection of, that's more of a reflection of the individual than a lot of things. Like when you're faced with a lack of control, what do you choose as your thing that you're going to control? Like what, what thing are you going to bear down on that this is your thing to make you feel comfortable? Some folks decide I'm going to look inward and control my house. Other folks decide I'm going to control thing i'm going to dictate everybody else's control and that well it's depressing it's revealing and depressing yeah that's really kind of fascinating though i didn't even think about that in terms of the covid and (laughs) and so many especially here in the states people's response to that it almost kind of then becomes sort of an antagonistic or a, or a weaponization of their routine and their everyday because I don't maybe I don't know I would assume that the majority of people who are out and about and protesting against this very simple thing in my mind of just wearing a mask and self-isolating and common sense health practices I, some people probably were but not all of them were protesting these sorts of similar health practices and common sense stuff before the pandemic. Their routine wasn't, oh, I'm going to go outside. I'm going to scream at some people. I'm going <laughs> to get in people's faces. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make an ass of myself. You know, they, they established this new routine, this new every day. They, they specifically took on routine that is antagonistic towards others to derive sense of control. They are so <laughs> concerned with their selves and being standing out from the crowd that they're taking a intentionally antagonistic contrarian viewpoint in order to exert their routine, the control of their routine onto others, to force others to deal with their routine, their everyday. It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable levels of selfish. Yeah. Yeah, that's a fascinating thought. I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, that didn't even cross my mind. It's like, oh, wow, well, that really makes me think about that kind of people in a new, a new way. <laughs> it's, yeah, listen, I'm a pessimist in the worst way, right? I think, by and large, the worst of people, or I expect the worst of people because they've, they've cleared that bar with regularity. You know, anytime the bar is set low, there's going to be somebody who's going to go under it. And we've seen that time and time and time again. And you would think that in 
you know, we're getting off in the weeds now, but you would think that in something as simple as, you know, best health practices, it would not be so. But of course, of course there are. Whenever the idea of masks were floated, I was like, there's going to be some dumb motherfuckers who are going to be like, no, I'm not doing it. Sure enough. Because they, you know, they, 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 they have to feel in control of something and not something. They have to feel like they're in control of others. However many. However many. Right. We, we could probably edit all that out. There's just a complete rant. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> I, I enjoy the, the way that, that that took off. So I'm going to move it a little bit forward. We had talked about this idea of missing hospitality. And when the everyday is a site of attention, when an unwelcome character kind of intrudes someone's everyday. And so in happy days, we don't really know what kind of force or event or people made the setting for Winnie so dangerously inhospitable. We don't know what caused this hill to swallow her up. That's that's Beckett's main way of doing things. He just kind of throws us in an absurd situation with no context and no background whatsoever. We talked about it a bit in our last episode, and I'm sure we'll keep talking about it, but uh, there's an obvious connection here that can be drawn to uh, World War II. Beckett took a lot of inspiration from sort of the atrocities and the world-shattering catastrophes that happened during that era, and he kind of morphed them and and put them in most of his plays. Um, The threat of bombing during this time was very real daily occurrence. The gongs alerting and waking Winnie from sleep can... Uh, from sleep can kind of serve as almost a direct comparison to the alerting shriek of an air raid siren. Uh, What's interesting too is Beckett could maybe even be treating Happy Days as sort of a satirical treatment of British wartime activities. So I was thinking about keep calm, carry on, you know, and Winnie's perseverance in the face of a bombing uh, raid may be read as a parody of popular blitz narratives of the plucky and stoic civilian response to German bombing campaigns. This sort of interpretation harnesses the political potential of the everyday during wartime, which is transforming routine civilian behavior into morale-boosting acts of resistance. Keep calm, carry on. And that kind of leads into what we were just talking about. We, we are kind of citizens in uh, a potential everyday of wartime. We're not at war with a nation. We're not at war with different people, but we are at an invisible war with an invisible threat, this virus. And so our routine civilian behavior has been transformed. Our everyday is different during wartime. Whereas in this instance, the British sort of uh, narrative was having routine civilian behavior and boosts of, or acts of resistance to the war. Uh, you know, don't, don't mind the bombings. We're going to keep our, our British wits about us and we're not going to worry. The American way seems to be we're gonna <laughs> we're gonna actively rally and rail against each other during during this time. A good portion of us have kind of made the war uh, civil. We, we we've we've picked a war against each other instead of fighting against the the disease. I think that's interesting. It's depressing, and you're absolutely <laughs> right. I'm gonna say it's that a depressing. lot. No, I'm gonna say that a lot, and it's not. I joked earlier about being a pessimist and to an extent I am but it is depressing because I care so much about the well-being of everybody else and it's just heartbreaking man like we have this thing this pandemic that's been going on since at least March we don't really know we don't have a good gauge and when it first hit but March is when it became 
a national security threat, essentially. And from the very moment that lockdown started to be implemented, the response has been politicized. It has been divided and divisive and intentionally so. And the idea that something like a virus that does not discriminate who it kills, it does not, it, 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 it kills indiscriminately, that that can be part, a significant part of the undoing of the most powerful nation in the history of the world. I don't want to say greatest. I want to say most powerful nation, unrivaled in military and economic (laughs) power. And that something as deceivingly simple as a proper response to a virus can be a significant, can play a significant part in the downfall of this nation is heartbreaking. It is heartbreaking. It's so sad. And you can't do anything about it. You can only control your behavior. And the moment that you you start trying to control someone else's behavior, well, now you're the jerk that's doing the thing that nobody likes. Oh, my God. It's it's depressing, man. It's just not seeing us unify over this thing has dashed so much hope personally for the future of this country than so much else. It's a simple thing, folks. Like, it's a, it's a simple thing. It, it's going to kill you. It could potentially kill you. We're not trying. It doesn't matter left, right, center, male. It, it could kill you. And that is, I don't know, man. Like, I just don't know. It's a civil war. That's what you said. It, it has caused a civil, a cultural civil war. It has furthered the divide it has i don't know if it has caused a cultural civil war but it has certainly highlighted it yeah yeah that's a good distinction i don't know if that was the kickoff but uh it's certainly made many conflicts more apparent the these these six months have been very illuminating uh and revealing of kind of the the cultural center of what our country is currently going through it's it's definitely put us under the microscope we yeah and you know we we speak both of us speak from the perspective of the united states because we're the only developed country that can't seem to quite get it figured out and we have two camps more or less we have one that says we need to implement best health practices we have we need we need need to wear masks We, we need to take care of people and then on the other side, we have folks that are saying, well, we need to normalize the virus and get back to work and no- normalize the virus. Right. It boggles the mind that like, when someone floats that idea of normalizing the virus, how do they not believe or how can they see within themselves or not see within themselves in that statement that that is going to be remarkably divisive? Is it intentional? Like, is the intent to divide? Because when you say we need to normalize this, we need to normalize and just throw open the doors, <laughs> and then you get angry when people clap back at that. Like, I, 
we're, we're, again, we're, we're off into the weeds, but I love it. <laughs> it's so stupid that this is the cultural war we're fighting. It's so goddamn stupid that this is the thing that is dividing us as a country. It's unbelievable. It's so stupid. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm frantically scribbling things on a post-it note because this is, this is fun. I, we have all these things written up and now we're just going so far off into, into shit that neither of us really <laughs> had typed up to discuss. But I, it, it keeps coming back to, to this play. I mean, a lot of what's going on, a lot of this sort of antagonism and this bullshit, really, frankly, in, in my opinion, that we're seeing of people that are so vehemently normalized the virus and so vehemently trying to rush to reopen, right? is I think because people's everyday and people's routine have become so heavily disrupted. I mean, you see all these people that continue to go out to restaurants or, 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 and, and not follow any kind of procedures that can potentially reduce transmission of the virus. But I mean, in my opinion, even with all the best safety measures in mind, if you're in close proximity with others, and someone has any kind of symptom of it, it's going to, you can do anything you want to try and prevent it. You can't stop it. But we're so, we miss having our routine. We miss having our, our everyday lives. We miss being able to go to the movie theater, being able to go to a restaurant, being able to go to a bar, that we're so willing to kind of look at, into these waves and waves and waves of common sense that's telling us not to go back to it yet. And we still ignore it and do it anyway. And it's like Winnie be, being trapped in this hill and just, just going through her person, remarking on all these, oh, look at these fine objects. Look at all, all these happy memories. Oh, what a happy day. And the, the dirt is climbing up her neck. She doesn't care. <laughs> she doesn't care. And that right there, okay, it highlights the fact that, the fact that some folks are so unwilling to budge on their everyday routine that they're willing to put others at risk highlights the thought process, the pervasive thought process of selfishness, deeply ingrained selfishness that has become a, not a prerequisite, but a bullet point of this, the American citizen. It is deeply, deeply selfish. And just taking a moment and thinking, you know, what does it really cost me to put on a mask? What does it really cost me to adhere to best health practices? That is not here. We, we just don't do it. Too many people do not do it. And it's because we're selfish. It's because we're unwilling to consider our fellow man before we consider ourselves. And it's disgusting. It's foul and it's vile and it's everywhere. I'm not just talking about some Joe Schmo out in Rinkadink, Kansas, right? There's people here in Los Angeles that do it. There's people in Nebraska. There's people in Colorado. It's a significant portion of the country that is just will willingly putting other people's lives at risk because they're selfish. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I think you're, I think you're spot on. I think it is potentially an interesting discussion that can be had, and we might touch on this in a few minutes when we 
talk about more environmental stuff. Sure. But that, that selfishness, well, I guess let me ask you, in your opinion, what level do you think is that specific selfishness that you're talking about in terms of the virus and in terms of so many people's reaction to it? How much of that do you think is inherited from our U.S. culture, from, from this sort of idea of the individual first, of just bore your head down, go to work, of you better get your ass back in line, get your ass back to the factory, get your ass back to the restaurant, to behind the barn. And how much of it is actually an individual separate from their state, from their society, however much you are able to separate those two. Right. I, I think, don't know if that question no, makes No, no, no. It, it, <laughs> make, it makes a, a ton of sense. I think that it's a combination of a, a couple of things. We, as a country, there's a, a, another pervasive thought of American exceptionalism, right? And that I mean, objectively, yes, the United States is the most powerful country in the history of the world. The, the right. military might is unparalleled. The economic influence is unparalleled. Unlikely that we will see a change in that status quo for a while. Right. So as citizens of the United States, we have been taught that we are exceptional. We have been taught that we are above um, a lot of the rest of the world because we're more powerful than them. And so that, you know, the United States dictates the way the world works. And I mean, <laughs> we kind of like, we kind of do, but sure. that yeah. is a toxic thought when it bleeds into, well, it's a toxic thought to begin with, right? What it does is it creates a lack of accountability and it starts, oh, yeah. it starts with, an international level because the United States is not accountable to anyone internationally, right? We ignore world court rulings all the time. We undermine any progress uh, that happens in the UN, any proposals that may adversely affect us, we just ignore or veto whole cloth. And when this, when citizens see their leaders reacting like that, and when citizens witness the people that we have chosen to represent us acting above the law or above everybody else. Well, of course it's going to bleed down to us. How could it, how could it not? It's the, it, it, the yep. entire country is based off of it. The entire country is based off of we're better than everybody else. And then you compound that with the idea that is drilled into your head of you got to get yours and fuck the other guy. You got to get yours and you got to grind while it is so heartbreaking to see and witness on a day-to-day -day basis, it doesn't surprise me in the least. It doesn't surprise yeah. me in the least because it's the heartbeat of our country. Right. And that's sad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, and that, that's sad. And can that's just sad. go at the end of every oh. sentence that we've said here. <laughs> but I mean, like Winnie seems to tie it back in, into the play she, she, I mean, she's fairly exceptional in the fact that she's one of two people that we see in the show, right? right? And she holds herself to a pretty high standard. She refers everything back to work. We're getting into my, the way I interpreted the play, and I want to hold off on that for right now until you're ready. But she refers <laughs> everything back to herself. Everything is remarkably self-centered. And it's just a direct reflection of, of the United States as a whole. 
it's just it, it really it's like holding up a mirror to the united states and being like this, this is you this this right here is you you see this that's you dumbass <laughs> <laughs> and what yeah. do we do and and we you know when folks call us out when world leaders call us out what do we do we turn up our noses and we say we're the greatest country ever oh what a happy day what a happy exactly exactly oh what a happy fucking day <laughs> that's uh that's fascinating that was a fun fun many a tangent gone down i'm so sorry i keep derailing i enjoy that i'm gonna make one one last little observation little point of discussion here and then we can we can move on to other things but i think it's an interesting interesting thing to talk about our threats or ideas of catastrophe have shifted quite a bit since the era of world war ii and since when uh the times when Beckett wrote this play. So, I mean, you think about it. In World War II, the threat of nuclear war was so prevalent on people's minds. I mean, not to say that it certainly can't happen now, but in all honesty, it, it doesn't have as much of an immediate kind of toll on people as it did back then because they saw the direct effects and devastation that it can have on people. It, it was a very real danger. Whereas now we don't really have a sort of tangible, viable disaster. And so our catastrophe is far less graspable. It's, it's, it's a lot harder to see and harder to understand. And we just talked about it with the disease, quite literally. It's invisible. We, we, we can't see it. But there's a Beckett scholar, uh, Rob Nixon, who talks about this idea. It's called slow violence. And so he talks about slow violence. They mean a violence that occurs gradually and one that's out of sight a violence of delayed destruction that is dispersed across time and space, an attritional violence that is typically not viewed as violence at all. Violence is customarily conceived as an event or action and is immediate in time, explosive and spectacular in space, and as erupting into instant sensational visibility. We need, I believe, to engage a different kind of violence, a violence that is neither spectacular nor instantaneous, but rather incremental. It's calamitous repercussions playing out across a range of temporal scales. The long dyings are underrepresented in strategic planning as well as in human memory. And so he's talking about this slow burn, essentially, of violence that's kind of just permeating in the periphery, burning around in the background that we don't really pay much attention to because we are so ingrained in our daily lives and our routine in our everyday until one day that slow violence inevitably erupts into fast violence. And so this, this concept of slow violence kind of brewing in the background while we're so focused on our own life is what I was talking about at the beginning of my long rambling uh, uh, in terms of the environmental disaster and sort of the climate disaster. Certainly what happened and what is happening on the West Coast, the violence has now become fast because it is very real and tangible and the threat of catastrophe is directly in front of people. But even in areas where there aren't this, these swaths of fires or hurricanes, that violence is still present. It's just slow and it's, it's growing behind us and underneath us and around us. And we're just burying our heads in the mound of dirt while it's slowly climbing up and uh, will eventually swallow us up, you know? And I think that's interesting because if you, one thing that you have to imply about Winnie is that she sees it happening to her, right? There's no way that you could start to be buried and continue to be buried without 
seeing it happening. And to your point, like the climate crisis, for instance, we have thousands of people that are telling us that it's happening. It's not something that's going to creep up on us and take us by surprise. There are people actively shouting at <laughs> anyone and anyone, anyone and everyone who will listen, that this is yeah. happening. We are seeing it happening. Like, just look down at your feet and look at the rising ground that's swallowing, swallowing you up. Exactly. <laughs> and just, you know, just like Winnie, there's folks that are just like, eh, whatever, no big deal. Right. All is well. All is well. <laughs> that that idea that that alone was the the major image that really struck me. Yeah, when we were first talking about about this episode, and so I know I, I think that that's maybe again power to the interpretation of Beckett's work. It has the ability to kind of, like we talked about with Endgame, to show us what our lack of action or what our current actions can become if they're unchecked. And so it's the same sort of thing here. I mean, we can, we can continue to, to sit in our hills and, and rummage around in our purse while the world burns, or we can change our behavior. But this calls into question the beginning of our episode here. How much can we actually control? <laughs> you know, is it, is it mostly just us ignoring it? Is it mostly just us giving into our everyday and our routine? Or is it because we seek to those levels of control and comfort because it's the only thing we can control because we know the way that our capitalist society has been built. We don't have control over the environment. We don't have the means to make at, at this point because of the slow violence and how slowly it's been permeating in terms of our climate. We no longer can take individual actions that will make a difference. Right. And the system is such that in order to, get to a place where you could stymie the behaviors, you have to engage in the behaviors. Right. It's set up so that by the time you are in a position to fight the thing, you have become the thing. And at that point, right. you don't want to give it up. I mean, I mean, if I had <laughs> $6 billion, you think I'd be like, yeah, we should tie like, man. Like, no, obviously like it, if you become if you become wealthy enough that those kind of decisions start to be in your control, you are probably not going to be willing to make the decisions that are going to change the system because the system has worked out for you. Yeah. Yeah. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. If it, if it ain't broke for you, ain't no for sense you, in right. fixing it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, like you said, it's sad. <laughs> it's sad. It is it is sad. What's troubling to me um, is that it is feasible through certainly a, a tremendous amount of luck and, and hard work to attain status and power and wealth on an immense level. But that the, for me personally, the sacrifice to, I guess, my soul, I don't know what you can call it, would be so great that it is not worth, it's not even worth trying to attain that. And right. so then you're resolved to saying, well, I'm never really going to make a difference. I'm never really going to make a change because I will never have the amount of wealth and power necessary to change the system from the inside. And so yeah. you're left to hold up a sign and ask people to honk <laughs> or, you know, any number of things that sound great on paper, but, they don't have any kind of power.
power or money behind them. So they're not really affecting much. And that's sad. <laughs> and that's, we should maybe have a, have a subtitle for the name of this podcast. Just be dot, dot, dot. And that's sad. <laughs> just keep adding phrases of just depressive phrases onto here. Uh, yeah. I mean, there's no, really, there's no resolution. Uh, I certainly don't have any answers. I, on, on how we fix this. I think that reading these, again, reading these plays and these works are helpful because it shows us an alternative to what we're currently doing. And if enough people start to question that idea of how much control they actually have, then maybe there will be a collective consciousness to, to maybe take some sort of direct action against that. Try and try and get some control back, but it's certainly going to take, it's going to take a lot of people before, uh, before that can happen. A lot of people and, one of the things that you mentioned earlier about the idea of, of a, a national program to start these conversations through viewing this, these works and everything. One of the reasons that that will, that will never happen is because it would give access to those conversations to people who would routinely oh, yeah. not be in a position to view these works, right? Yeah. Like that you and I are talking and, and, and we, speak from a place of, of immense privilege despite our relative, you know, we're not movers or shakers by any means, but <laughs> you and I both had the ability to devote substantial time and money or time and effort to watching the show, analyzing the show, reading the text, being able to um, invest in the text. And there's a lot, a lot a significant amount of the population that simply don't have the time or resources to do that. And the system Absolutely. is set up in such a way that they never will. <laughs> and that's sad. But one of the reasons that these changes, these systemic changes are difficult to get any momentum behind is because so many of the folks that they would most greatly affect simply do not have the resources to even watch a show or read a show that could spark those conversations. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. And that's sad. And that's sad. <laughs> it's going to become a meme. So happy days. What, mm -hmm. uh, what, what, do you, what do you think? What do you, what do you got going? <laughs> oh man, I've got some thoughts. If you thought I got into the weeds before. But <laughs> Buckle up. Yeah. You strap in. You're going to need a gator to get yourself out of the weeds here. Fan boat. I, um, so we, I started reading Happy Days and very quickly decided that I would focus on uh, self-centeredness, specifically, obviously, of the character of Winnie. That hasn't become prominent or noticeable already from my comments, then you really haven't been listening. Um, and that's, it's not without merit. Winnie is remarkably self-centered. Yeah. One of the most self-centered characters that I probably have ever read. It's like the last five or 10 pages of the show threw a monkey wrench into what I was, how, how I was approaching the uh, in interpretation of, of this character. I was 60 odd pages. I was just annoyed and irritated and angry at this character 
only to have it flip and feel immense sympathy and sadness for her. Ultimately, she falls somewhere in between, which of course is only appropriate for Beckett because you see what you want to see and nothing can be simple or taken at face value. The first act is, in my, in my opinion, it's a masterclass in, in selfishness, aloofness, blind optimism in the face of looming disaster. She spends a lot of her time primping and, and perfecting. She chooses to focus on things that concern her appearance rather than confront her circumstances, which she's buried up to her waist in earth. She can't move. And she appears entirely unconcerned by this. And she's content to chirp away about the wonderfulness of the day. And that, that bothered me a lot. It's very uncomfortable. Right? It's, and you're just like, what are you doing? What are you doing? And it, like that style of character who is, what's a degree above aloof? Because that's what she is. She's not aloof. She's straight up one, one step above. <laughs> yeah. Even a, a lot of the first act and most of the play is her trying to elicit a response from Willie, who is her husband or partner of some, I, I, I believe it's her, it's her husband. Yeah. That seems to be what we yeah. can gather. <laughs> and he's, he's mostly not seen. He apparently lives in a hole. And when he does show up, he's got some like blood trickling down. He's a weird dude. <laughs> but he doesn't really talk much. But her whole goal is to get him to respond to her. Mm-hmm. And when, she, when he finally does, it's half-assed. And it's like in the form of a newspaper headline. He's reading an old newspaper. Even whenever she does elicit a response for him, it does give her joy. But she... She refers, she makes it about herself. She yeah. uses these um, headlines as a way to launch into fragmented memories that are like her first crush or her first boyfriend, her first ball, like her first kiss in a random tool shed that she can't remember whose tool shed it was. She makes a point. <laughs> yeah. It's like, I don't know whose tool shed it was. That is great. And then when, when Willie responds in a way that she can't make it about herself she says something he says something like wanted capable boy or wanted smart boy something like that she pivots and instead starts to focus on the words on her toothbrush again everything Mm -hmm. is about herself and it's weird because she has these moments that are immensely depressing very depressing and peel back the curtain and give the illusion that there's something more going on there. And it immediately is undercut by her superficiality. And this is no better illustrated. I have a a paragraph here where she goes on and she says, ah, yes, if I could only, if only I could bear to be alone, I mean, prattle away with not a soul to hear. Not that I flatter myself. You hear much. No, Willie, God forbid days, perhaps when you hear nothing but days two when you answer, so that I may say at all times, even when you do not answer and perhaps hear nothing. Something of this is being heard. I am not merely talking to myself. That is in the wilderness, a thing I could never bear to do for any length of time. That is what enables me to go on. 
go on talking, that is. Whereas if you were to die, to speak in the old style, or go away and leave me, then what would I do? What could I do all day long? I mean, between the bell for waking and the bell for sleep. Simply gaze before me with compressed lips. Not another word as long as I drew breath. Nothing to break the silence of this place. Save possibly now and then, every now and then, a sigh into my looking glass or a brief gale of laughter. Should I happen to see the old joke again? My hair. Did I, <laughs> did I brush and comb my hair? She just has this huge paragraph talking about how lonely she is and how she, you, what, what would she do if Willie died, who she never even hardly talks to her, and then is just immediately like, oh, man, did I do my hair? Oh, pisses me off. It pisses me off. I, I don't like that. <laughs> but there are people that are like that. They have moments huh? where you kind of wonder if there's something more going on there and they immediately undercut it by some dumbass thing that they say. And he's like, no, this guy's head's completely in the clouds. And as an audience member, that whiplash is unsettling. I, I can't imagine watching that as, a, as an audience member and seeing this person have this kind of almost self-realization and then completely undercut it that would be very, it caused me anxiety. Yeah. <laughs> but it's not strictly through those words because I think we mentioned it in the beginning. Not only is she going back and forth with this kind of whiplash um, in her words, but it's the, it's the methodical smiling and turning off of the smile and smiling and turning off of the smile that Beckett is very particular and specific about. Mm-hmm. And it just it le- it just led me to question what the fuck is going on in her head like what 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 is this character thinking on a on a second to second basis and how much how much of her character or how much of that aloofness is real ignorance and how much of it is it put on yeah that's an interesting concept there how much of it is put on. Because, I mean, I agree with you on that, but then who is she putting it on for? Exactly. Right? Her, her pig husband that lives in the hole behind her? <laughs> or for us, is she, because we're watching. So I guess um, Beckett's all about breaking the fourth wall sure. and, and some of his stuff. So maybe she's very aware that we are watching. I don't, maybe she's putting it on for herself. Exactly. Is it internalized so that way she doesn't, you know, it's just another way that she doesn't have to deal with the fact that she's up to her waist in ground and earth and being buried it's it's hard to say but it 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 is deeply unsettling for me as a reader and as a viewer yeah (laughs) and she so she's grounded she's grounded by things we've talked about her her purse and her 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 bag of tricks and there's a toothbrush there's a there's a a gun um (laughs) that she throws away um, his lipstick, there's all kinds of just, just myriad things. And the, the bag of, of trinkets, it seems endless. She doesn't even know how far it goes. I think she, she makes a mention. She's like, I don't even know what's down there. Like, you can't go down there too far. You know, maybe those are her hopes and dreams. Who's to say? If they're not realized, if, yeah. they're, not, if they're not discovered, then they can never be broken. They can never be used up and, and thrown into this desolate wasteland that is her reality and 
these uh, items that she uses, they they send her back into a nostalgic, like a drug trip almost. Um, and I, I think I wrote down here that it was essentially, what she's essentially doing, because this play was written in 1960, seven years later, you're going to have Timothy O'Leary saying, tune in, plug in, or whatever, drop out. Right? And that's what, that's what she's doing. She's using materialistic or synthetic objects as an escape from the very harsh reality that is killing her, presumably. Yeah. And she, she muses that maybe she put on weight <laughs> because the <laughs> earth around her feels tighter. And she, res- she seems resolved to her fate and willing to accept a future reality, which I found staggering. She, she said that, um, yes, whatever occurred that did not occur before, and yet, I wonder, yes, I confess, I wonder, with the sun blazing so much fiercer down and hourly fiercer, is it not natural things should go on fire, never known to do so? In this way, I mean spontaneous-like. Shall I myself not melt, perhaps, in the end, or burn? Oh, I do not mean necessarily burst into flames. No, just little by little be charred to a black cinder, all this visible flesh. On the other hand, did I ever know a temperate time? No, I speak of temperate times and torrid times. They are empty words. I speak of when I was not yet caught in this way and had my legs and had to use and had the use of my legs and could seek out a shady place like you when I was tired of the sun or a sunny place when I was tired of the shade like you. And they are all empty words. It is no hotter today than yesterday. It will be no hotter tomorrow than today. How could it? And so on back into the far past, forward into the far future. And should one day the earth cover my breasts, then I shall never have seen my breasts. No one ever seen my breasts. And that (laughs) last statement blew my mind. (laughs) That statement and should one day the earth cover my breasts, then I shall never have seen my breasts. No one ever seen my breasts. This is where we're going to get off into the weeds. because Let's do it. This last sentence is unbelievably dangerous. And yet it is an extremely prominent mindset that is indicative or that you can find in lot of people today they're so grounded by their own beliefs and their own selves that they can't be moved to the point that even as these belief systems harm and engulf their identity they continue to just move the goalposts a little bit and a little bit until they're swallowed up entirely and you can't distinguish the person from the belief or rhetoric or whatever. The person's identity becomes their political identity. We'll stay with political identity. That's what's the most prominent right now. And they become Mm -hmm. one and the same. And that is so disgusting and it's so hollow and it's so empty and it makes me so angry and sad to watch this happen over and over and over and over again. There are people that I interact with pretty regularly whose entire, entire personality is their political beliefs. And it's not, it's not specific to any side of the political spectrum. 
that's yeah. just that's who they are. For every crazy right wing nut that you can name, there's somebody on the left who's on TikTok shouting them down and saying, if you're not with it, get out. Or if you're not with it, get with it because we're moving without you. And that's their whole identity. Oh, yeah. It's, it's parasitic. It's this parasitic thing where folks, is, their only connection with the world is through the lens of politics or through the lens of their specific issue. And the deeper ingrained that that becomes, the further towards the fringe that they get pushed because you're, you're so convinced that you're right that you just keep finding more sources that prove how right you are which just pushes you further and further out to the fringe. And when you hold these increasingly fringe beliefs, you're going to experience pushback because any reasonable person would push back against fringe <laughs> lunatic ideas. And it leads to rejection from opposing or even just moderate voices. And that rejection is interpreted as a personal attack because their identity is so tied up in their beliefs and politics and so what they do is they find solace in their own beliefs again. And it just creates this fucking feedback loop where the person ends up isolated out in the middle of tinfoil hat land and is just like shouting vitriol and hate and just like anyone who even tries to reason with them or speak to them on an issue just gets shouted down and is called a Marxist or is called a, you know... A racist, whatever, you attach your adjective to yeah. the frit. And they have attached their entire personality to a set of, of beliefs. And any dispute or dissent from that is interpreted as a personal attack. But let's, let's, you know, circle back to the play here. Because for about 60 pages, I was just irritated and pissed off by this character <laughs> who was basically doing the same thing, right? Was so the things that she was grounded by were literally killing her, literally killing her. Right. And it's so obvious that this is what's happening. And what is so frustrating is that it is so obvious from an outside party to like, to me, I can see those folks and be like, this is what's happening. Like, this is not what's wrong with you because that's incendiary. But like, this is what's happening to like, this is the feedback loop you've created for yourself. Right. And you can't, you can't tell them anything. And so when the second act opens and Winnie is now buried up to her neck, at first I was like, yeah, of course. Yeah. You idiot. Like this is, you did this to yourself, but it shows a, a much more subtle <laughs> I don't mean to interrupt. I just love the idea or the the response of any Beckett play, any act two of a Beckett play immediately being met with, oh, of course. <laughs> yeah, of course. Idiot. Like, yeah, they lack common sense, right? Yeah. <laughs> but Winnie in the second act, in my opinion, is a, a lot more somber. Uh, is, mm-hmm. It seems a little bit more aware of the of the dire straits that she's in. Then she recounts the story of her shitty marriage to Willie and how terrible he was, still is. Yeah. <laughs> and he, just, he just never listened to her ever. 
and still doesn't in this hellscape wasteland where all they have is each, is each other. And I just immediately became so sad for her. So, so sad for her because she may do with, she may do as best as she could with things or self-care probably to a fault probably. And she coped with being shut out of her partner's life by a put on smile and memories of happier times. Mm. And that is, God damn, that's heartbreaking. And it gives the character an immense amount of depth and, and gravity. Let's, you know, forgive the earth pun. I am committed to the notion of mining hope from these horribly depressing texts. That's what the original idea was whenever we started out. That, that, that's that's the idea that we floated anyways and so i've right. i've really tried it's tough it's really oh, tough yeah. and so what i've gleaned what i've manufactured from this text is that the folks that i described earlier the ones whose personalities are so tied to the politics it's unbearable it's unhealthy it's dangerous to society well they feel rejected and is it partially to mostly their own fault Yes, it is. You say stupid things, you win stupid prizes. That's the current, you're right. But what they truly lack and what Winnie lacks is a feeling of belonging. They, they withdraw into their fringe nonsense because they're so often rejected. And then we as a society shit on them for coping as best as they know how. Now, be clear. I refuse to take responsibility for creating someone else's dumbass radical circumferency. You know, if, if you're a sycophant, that's on you. Yeah. But Fair. <laughs> I do believe it's, it's a little irresponsible of us to just sit back and watch as they get buried by their own burdens. The flip side is that if they do turn on themselves, they'd probably shut up. <laughs> and the rest of society can move forward. So, I understand why it's tempting to just watch them spin their wheels, but I don't know that it's prudent. And, um, and I apologize for the novella I just recited. No, that was wonderful. <laughs> that, that was a, a fascinating insight into, the, into this play. I was writing down notes as you were talking, but the biggest one that stood out to me, I don't, it, wouldn't it be so cool if like for this podcast if we discuss the show or any of his stuff really it's easier with his dramatic text but i liked how our takeaways our interpretations were very very similar in kind of the core of their ideas but then our interpretation of what those ideas mean went down two different paths yeah i think it'd be it'd be so fun to like be able to put on a production of this show where we're each the director and then we just like here's my version of this like here's my like what you just went through this here's my very overly uh, political sort of in, interpretation of, of this text and then here's my very political in a different way in terms of our climate and our environment and our, our sense of control like i think that'd be fascinating i see and i think it's really fair i think it's fascinating that it probably speaks to the character of each of us that you took things in an environmental and like a, um, like a widespread uh, world level. 
and I, in my selfishness, reflected on like a personal, like, you know, how, how, how do I interpret this personally? And how, how does each, like, how does this apply to people, like single people, not any specific person, but like single right. people. And yeah, that's just, I, no, that, I agree. I think that's a very totally valid way to look at it. And also, I was struck with your, I don't know if I, I don't want to paraphrase, but you're kind of saying that like, we have a responsibility to, to act when we see these, these types of people and their behavior, right? When you're, when you're ending with that sort of thought. So then that made me think of the ending of this play, which is one of my favorite endings of any of Beckett's plays. He, he loves taunting this idea of an escape from our fate being just outside of our reach. You know, he places the gun at the top of the mound, but she can't get it because she's buried up to her neck. But then the text in the stage direction says that, you know, Willie exits dressed to kill. And so I'm curious what, your interpretation then of what happens when the curtain closes does he grab the gun does he put the gun on her well i think that's yeah. a great question and i guess it it depends on how um how much of a jerk you think willie is or how cynical or evil you really think he is because if he is everything that she relays he will just ignore her and let her continue suffering that's pretty messed up. <laughs> yeah. I, and I really, that's what I tend to believe. He just walked off and just right. let her, that's what he had always done according to her. Now, is she a reliable narrator, so to speak? I, you know, hard to say. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but I tend to believe that he just left her to suffer because that's what he has always done. Yeah. What no, about that's, you? That's... What do you think? <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know if there's, I don't know where I land either. I mean, again, back to our sort of respective interpretations of it. I think it's very fitting uh, that the power for change, the power to fix a problem, although in this case, fixing the problem is, I guess, her committing suicide. But the the idea of of changing your environment, changing what's happening is literally right in front of you, but you can't grab it. And so I think then Willie's stillness just reinforces that fact that we now have a separate body, someone who can move, someone who is mobile, someone who isn't bogged down by the world, and he also doesn't move. And I think that that just reinforces this idea of our everyday, where we're, we succumb to the slow violence around us, even when the logical way out or a fix or a solution is right in front of us we're either restricted from our surroundings or restricted from ourselves and it also speaks to i think what we talked about earlier how now that he's risen to a position of power and it's worked out mm -hmm. for him I mean, he's not going to change it because it worked out for him right he's, he, he's, he escaped <laughs> he's on yeah. top he's on he's on cloud nine he's on top of that hill he's <laughs> crawling around weird pig man <laughs> weird pig uh, fascinating stuff yeah I, I was just struck by that i was like that'd be so cool just like and now watch my here's my production yeah. of happy days let's we'll go, go back oh, to back <laughs> yeah. through two three hours hour and a half each there you go. I, yeah, I'd, I'd cut stuff <laughs> in a bridged version <laughs> in a bracket beckett a bridge yeah 10 minutes long <laughs> <laughs>
Like you get the idea. She talks <laughs> <Ten> more. <laughs> Ten minute happy days. She talks. Five minutes reject. That's all you need. You get the you get the idea. <laughs> I tell you what though, that that's a great thing that you just said is like you get the idea, and you do from five minutes into the show. You know what's going to happen. You it. Yeah. Nothing is going to change. What could change? Like what in the world could change that would, or that would be, that would significantly alter her circumstances. And yet the show is an hour and a half long. Is it hour and a half long? And yeah, you could do it in five minutes. You could do it in 10 minutes, but making people sit through that and that anxiety, uncomfortability or whatever it's uh, it's pretty intentional, I would imagine, and it's very effective. It's uh, oh, yeah. it's very effective, but that also speaks to, uh, you know, like <laughs> we again we see what could be done. We could change things very quickly by enacting laws, you know, in environmental laws. We uh, carbon emissions, all these things. The, the changes are apparent, and they're not difficult. It's, yeah. <laughs> it's a willingness problem. Right. And so, you know, you could do Beckett in, you could do this play in, in five minutes, but um, Beckett's estate would not be willing to let you do that. Uh, you got to do the whole <laughs> thing. <laughs> <laughs> and we're the better for it. Absolutely. I agree. Wow. Mm. Well, good stuff. That, that was, was great. A, that was a fun conversation. I don't have any fancy fun conclusion other than uh you know and that's sad and that's sad <laughs> you know that's i'll tell you what and i think we talked about this uh whenever we did endgame coming into this uh this this episode re- recording this episode <sighs> the state of the world such as it is is immensely depressing the state let me let me rephrase the state the united states is immensely depressing Right, I can't speak for the rest of the world. I'm not a. I don't really. I'm not well traveled, but you know, just looking at articles, it seems like they've got things a little bit more on the rails than we do. Sure. So when I, both times I've come in to record this this podcast, I've been angry and upset, and and depressed and sad and just loaded for bear to just intentionally piss somebody off. I don't know who. I'm just gonna piss somebody off, but you're able to kind of download your dysfunction and download your frustration onto this show and onto this text and work through it. And it's cathartic. It really is, which is like the most cliche thing you can ever say about theater. But it is like, I feel better on the back end of this podcast than I did an hour and a half ago or two hours ago, whenever we started recording. Hey, and selfish though it is, I'm okay with it. (laughs) <laughs> yeah no i i think that that's a a powerful statement it helps us helps us work through this sort of the shit that we're <laughs> we're trudging through <laughs> trudging through kind of a weird thing <laughs> yeah trudging through and you know the other thing about the show is that you know the 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 landscape is endless right it go it, the way it said it looks endless looks like it goes on forever and that's how it often feels here and now is that this is going to go on ad infinitum until we have pushed the country and the world to the brink of annihilation whether that be 
cultural annihilation or climate annihilation. Who knows? But it does feel like we're getting there. And it's not going to change anytime soon. Oh, the happy days. <laughs> oh, what a happy day. People are going to listen to this and be just so depressed and be like, these fucking guys, they need therapy. Yeah, they, they, need, to, they need to go outside or something. <laughs> <laughs> they need to go outside, wear your mask. Bad news. <laughs> wow, good stuff. Well, I thank you for this very wonderful conversation on a very difficult and strange, but I think fun play. So it's wonderful doing it. I genuinely appreciate the opportunity for you to let me come in here and rant about nonsense because it's, um, it's, it's great. I, I really love doing this. Yeah, I'm right there with you. I don't know what our next one will be just yet. Well, we'll think it over. Yeah, we'll, we'll figure see, it out. See which one, what's, what, what random thing will happen in the world next that will go, ah, oh, that reminds me of this place. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about this. <laughs> Great. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. It'll be good. <laughs> All right. Well, if you're good, I'm good. We still got to figure out a, a way to stick this landing. Yeah. Oh. We'll, we'll come up with a close. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, Until I think, then. I think we've said that, enough. <laughs> and that's sad. <laughs> that's sad. Thanks for listening to Everything is Trash, a Beckett discussion. Follow us on social media at Everything is Trash Podcast. Subscribe, download, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like a deeper dive into this particular Beckett piece, check out the links in the episode description. Those intro-outro vibes are courtesy of Derek Heath. Find more of his work at dheath.bandcamp.com. Our killer logo designs were worked up by Adam Hike and Joel Rose. Follow them on Instagram at ahike12 and at joelroseArts.